Ezra Klein's Wonk Blog, wonkblog.com, has done most of the actual journalism that's being committed yeah. about the sequester. That's true. And Ezra Klein also. But he, he's sort of like, he's one of those guys who likes to write himself into the story a little bit. And he's more interested in like the personal politics of it, like the relationship between the, the parties. Well, but I mean, the, uh, Susie Kim and all of those folks work with him at Wonk Blog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, there's a whole whole team over there. And they're great. The long blog of the Washington Post is like bastion of sanity sometimes. One of the articles I pulled for the podcast was from Ezra Klein. It seems like he's lost some of his pretense that there is something Republicans could say yes to. Oh, wow. And he finally wrote an article like, yeah, I, yeah this I is why Obama that. can't make a deal with Republicans. Yeah. And it's because the entire basis of their position is not making a deal. Right, exactly. And that's... In- I, I did read that article, and it's incredible because I think that's really what the issue is. The root of the issue of the sequester is actually not the policy itself. The really hilarious thing about the sequester is that it is, at its heart, an act of cutting spending out of the budget. But what it really is is a symptom of a much bigger issue in Washington, which is partisan irreconcilability. There is so much emphasis on winning a new cycle and on communicating an ideological message that the policy almost kind of takes a back seat and doesn't even matter. And it turns into this sort of like existential parlor game that they play. You know, they sort of like go around and around in circles and one person says this and the other person says this and then they deny they say they said that even though there's all kinds of record of it and it becomes this absurd game as though that both the Democrats and the Republicans at the top positions of power are almost sort of like in denial of the fact that this this game is even really being played at all. It's, or that it's n- not to mention that it's like hurting the economy, yeah. um, it's stifling like, an already weak ac- recovery, right. none of that. The robots who are unable to form a new idea. The fact that both sides are sort of refusing to acknowledge each other's positions or make or cede any ground. What's really amazing about it is that it was designed to be something that's just stupid. And everyone let it happen anyway, because nobody really cared. Furthermore, nobody really had any incentives to stop it. Yeah. Even though the sequester is a thing that was passed into law, it was written into law. It could be just as easily unwritten into law. Yes, it could. It could. In fact, John Conyers proposed a one-line bill repealing the sequester. He he certainly did. And you know what? It it was never going to happen. Yeah, it was never going to happen. It was going to be allowed to happen. Boehner wouldn't bring it up for a vote in the House. No. Republicans would filibuster it to death in the Senate. Right, of course. But it's not only this kind of kabuki theater nonsense that you're hinting at. Because that's, is, and that's a is, big part of it. It is kabuki theater. The other part is that what we're witnessing is the end result of 30 years of the Republican Party burrowing itself deep enough into every level of government that when the time came, it could derail effective American governance. Yeah. Fresh off the heels of an election that they lost hugely nationally, they've still found ways to ruin (laughs) everything good about all three branches of government. Yes, they have. We have the Roberts Court. Yeah, really. The getting ready to court, fucking but. decide on the Voting Rights Act to decide if a majority panel of white and functionally white men yeah. wants to toss out the core legislative consequence of the civil rights movement. Yes. 
And it is a remarkable thing to do right after having lost an election where minorities voted overwhelmingly against you. 70% of Latino voters in the United States voted for Barack Obama. That wasn't an accident. That was done because the Republican Party refuses to acknowledge minority rights. They bait their voters based on code word dismissals of it as a fundamental idea, even though they can't act on it legislatively out loud. You know Exactly. So they just sort of perpetuate the um the image of that because it gets vote it, it's a voter turnout tool it's not real it doesn't it's make any the sense only tool that turns out their voters for them the party's been running on fumes for yeah. 30 years or more but now those fumes are going to become an ethnic minority in this country <laughs> yes they the america is not manufacturing old white men fast enough to keep the Republican Party a national party. It already lost them a national election. They just gerrymandered the House back when the Tea Partiers took power to guarantee themselves a continued House majority. Yes. But 2014 is going to be a year that occurs, hopefully, and hopefully we'll still be a species on this planet then. (laughs) Debatable. (laughs) Completely up in the air at this point. I just noticed just now that you have in foam letters, the letters M, F, and P up above the things right there. That's uh, very clever. Why, thank you. It's my, this is the MFP studio. Yes. Or um, the studio studio, as I call it. And it really feels like one, too. Uh, You're surrounded by that much foam. (laughs) (laughs) Or that much decorative cocaine. For for those... (laughs) (laughs) To really round out the music studio experience. Right, exactly. Yeah. I, I do have... Three pounds of the finest Bolivian powder, but it's really only for decoration, for decorative purposes. Yeah, like yeah, it's it's sort of glazed down in that. that, I think we have like a straw that's sort of propped up next to it, and you know, it's 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 like it's like 1982 in there. All of a sudden, you know, it is. It is. The scene gives it the Motley Crue feel. I, I do add umlauts to everything now. Uh, exactly. Someone should bring that back. I had a lot of leftover foam wedges when I was applying this uh, acoustical foam to my walls, and I, I did make letters for the MFP. I also have one of my spirit animals, Brian Dennehy, on the wall. Brian Dennehy makes no sense. That's just... <laughs> No, that's from my that's from my secret movie club. Oh, um, we are called Purple Mountains Dennehy. Purple Mountains. That's why there's purple mountains around him. Yes, I yes. see. That makes sense. Perfect sense, right? <laughs> um, I believe it's self-explanatory. These purple Brian mountains Dennehy. and the the <laughs> character actor Brian Dennehy posed in front of them majestically, triumphant <laughs> almost. Yes, perfect sense. It's magnificent. Is that actually Brian Dennehy's signature in the bottom right-hand corner of it? Because that would be especially uh, special. My friends gave it to me on my birthday. And no, because they put a heart by Brian Dennehy. <laughs> Love, Brian. This is the By That I Mean podcast. And I don't even know how to introduce you. You, you have been integral to my political addiction. You are one of the kindest people I've met. Thank you, Seth. And you very, I would say the same thing. Somehow sustain something resembling sanity. It, it's a struggle every day, sir. Despite your po- <laughs> the political levels in your blood. Yeah. Sure Ladies are. and gentlemen, the guest co-host for this episode is Chris Godwin. 
It's a pleasure to be here, Seth. Thank you. It's it's an absurd pleasure to have you here, Seth. <laughs> uh, I enjoy that. Um, our regular podcast co-hosts were utterly delinquent, nowhere to Terrible. be found. Terrible. Or they otherwise had things to do with their lives, which I don't understand or accept. I do not either. But I, I felt that I needed to address the current sequester and not only tie it into previous things that we've talked about on my podcast, but to discuss the ideas and arguments underneath it that a lot of us have come to accept about America and that a lot of us should not accept. And I can think of no better person to discuss it with than you, Chris. Thank you, sir. Likewise. You have a culture in the Republican Party that has based those 30 years primarily more than anything else on the role of government, being that they don't want there to be a role for government in private lives. So that being the basic idea that you start (laughs) from, if you put people who are against the idea of a strong federal government in charge of the federal government, they are going to do things that look completely insane. They'll, they will do things like play chicken with the president over an $84 billion sequester. They will do things like play games with the debt ceiling because they do not care. They will do things like hold the credit rating yeah. of the world's reserve currency. Yes. And the safety and soundness of the U.S. dollar hostage. Because they don't In order to care. demand budget cuts and tax cuts for rich people. No matter at which level they are operating, whether it's Scalia, whether it's Mitt Romney, yeah. Literally every voice that party has only has one unifying goal left to give money to rich people. Like it's that they have now revealed themselves. And did you hear the audio of Scalia talking about the idea of a Voting Rights Act as a racial entitlement? Yeah. And this is why they just can't get their <laughs> act together because they don't understand, they don't really understand the basic nature of the problem. You know, minorities like activist governments because activist governments can protect them from commercial interests, which would sideline them for the same reasons that commercial interests do a lot of other terrible things in the name of profit. But, you know, it's easy It's easy to create an other, right? It's, it's easy to make that the object of rage. And the history of the Republican Party has been based on that for at least the last 30 years. By taking, taking an object, if it's uh, if it's you know the Voting Rights Act, if it's the right of you know the Southern states to have control of their voting laws, which is a questionable idea at best, um, considering the history there. Um, what history, Chris? I, I'm not aware of. What is this word? His. <laughs> you would think that some elected Republican official would have come to the conclusion by now that having lost the 2012 election for so clearly obvious reasons under the terms that they did, you'd think that there would be some sort of way to reconcile that defeat with a change in the direction that their policy would be taking, like passing the Dream Act. Well, or a change in their tactics, or a change in their uh, dedication to obstructing literally everything proposed in policy but by the president things, or his party. It's even things that would help them. Like if they passed the DREAM Act, if they would, were to get over it and pass a DREAM Act unanimously, it would be such a remarkable thing. It would make them look good and make the Democrats look good Again. and make everyone look good. They had the chance to do that, but they won't. And the reason they won't is because they have a dissonance between what is, you know, um, the, the need to prove that the federal government can do nothing by doing nothing or actually improving the branding and purpose uh, of a 20th century Republican Party. It's not even just that it's racism, it's that it's trolling. Scalia is a troll. 
<laughs> he's like an internet troll, like that asshole who goes on the message boards because he has a, no life and only gets his jollies off by making other people feel bad yeah. and putting other people down. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his case, namely people who are non-male and non-Caucasian. Um, but it again, the, the race baiting and... Uh, the ideology of government as being useless, I think, are really only the mechanisms by which conservatives as a movement are now achieving their goal. Because, again, the goal ultimately is giving rich people more money. They have thwarted the results of elections through the legislative maneuvering that they used for the first term to which pretty is, much obstruct his agenda. Which is which, which it, so in and of itself sad. was unprecedented. Over 400 bills were passed through Nancy Pelosi's house that died in the Senate in the first two years of the Obama presidency. Mm-hmm. And so beaten and whipped are the Democrats in Congress who've been there long enough to be in positions of power that even Harry Reid couldn't or didn't get filibuster reform passed through the Senate. He couldn't so, do I mean, it. He couldn't do it. it I don't be- think he could do it, frankly. I think there were too many conservative Democrats who are either too dedicated to the institution or too scared that it would be used as some kind of campaign issue against them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, it's... As it stands, the Republicans aren't even acknowledging that the election happened. They are living and governing... They're governing in denial of election results. Yes. That's another step That's the problem. That's the problem is that they can't reconcile those two things. They can't rebrand the Republican Party and also continue to follow the marching orders of the money interests of the party, which really have the power there, telling them you need, you know, at this point, you know, we can't make Obama a one-term president anymore, but we can destroy his legacy, and we can't let the Democrats usher in a new liberal order. We can't have a repeat of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where the Democrats ran the table and enacted all kinds of reforms like, you know, Social Security reform, Medicare, Medicaid. The Great Society legislation. The Great, you know, the Great Society and the New Deal. Or fucking, yeah, go back even further. Yeah, all the way, no, all the way to... The mission is to eliminate the New Deal and the Great Society and all of that. They proved that good federal governance works. They proved it. It has already happened. But if you are a small government conservative trying to fight a popular idea, you have to find ways of proving that it doesn't work. And the best way to do that is to rob it of money. And the best way to do things like that are forcing budget cuts, things like the sequester, which gets back to the same root of it. That Republicans are so focused on trying to prove that the federal government doesn't work, even though it is working and can work and has been proven to do so many times throughout history. They have to find ways of proving their point right. And they, since they don't have the truth on their side, they have to manufacture things like crazy budget cuts to defund programs, reduce their effectiveness, and then therefore have an argument to say that the federal government doesn't work. You have, they have to do both. They have right, to exactly. say one thing and do another exactly. all the time. It must be exhausting. I don't know how to do it. Because I would go totally insane. Problem is we can work through myths. We can try to dispel myths. But when they literally gum up the mechanisms by which we make and enact and execute policy, it makes it almost impossible. Yeah. It literally threatens the stability of the whole system. And... Again, it's not as though the sequester, this set of spending cuts, 
was created in a vacuum. It's not as though it's President Obama's stated policy preference. He's even calling it stupid now. Yeah, even though it was actually his office's idea. But here's the thing. It was his idea, but his idea was to prevent it, you know, to use that as a tool to prevent it from happening. This whole thing comes from that deal that they made for the debt ceiling of 2011, the Budget Control Act. Right. And that's where this whole thing started. And at the time, he was starting to realize and calculate that the new powers controlling the party and the decision making and the leadership of the Congress on the Republican side were entrenched with very specific goals and a very specific mission. And basically, it's sort of like handing a can of gasoline and a match over to a pyromaniac. And saying, I know your past, but I'm going to trust you on this one. (laughs) Again, this is a party of people, especially the right wing of the Tea Party, who do not care. Someone just loved to watch the world burn. You know what I mean? And I think to a certain extent... Well, they love to watch the world burn because it means that their buddies are going to make money. Yes. In the aftermath. Right. Whether through privatization or cleanup or imprisonment or the people who companies or the people who want to to make fortunes off of public sector institutions which are run efficiently now but would be you know basically just kaiser permanente you know it'd be, it's a huge administrative cost thrive on top of right on top of what is, what is otherwise a very efficient program you know yeah um and that's what the republicans would that their end game their secret end game is that they would just like to privatize the american government they don't want there to be federal power to check the corporate sector because the people who finance them and make them exist want you to believe that this ayn randian philosophy of like everyone should be able to you know only the super rich should be a have um, you know privileges and free real freedoms. That's what they really mean when they say freedom. They're talking. They're not talking about like everyone having the freedom to do whatever they want. They mean having the freedom to be richer than you. Right. Exactly. And to consume. Yes. Because it's a society of makers and takers for them. Right. Exactly. Which is an it's, idiotic idea at best and dangerous at worst. It's the egotistical model. It's the Ayn Rand model for thinking about the world, thinking about economics, thinking about government. Yeah. And it's at its full extent and in its full public display, in my mind, if it's not treasonous, it's at least, at best, it's nihilistic. Yeah. And it's sad to even have in my mind the thought that one of America's two major political parties are now a nihilistic anti-governmental force within our politics. Yeah. Not only on its own merits, it's bad enough to propose uh, invasive ultrasound procedures uh, upon women who want to access basic health care. It's bad enough to challenge the Voting Rights Act before the Supreme Court um, and to try to pass in like 27 states laws that make it specifically harder as their end result for non-white people to vote. Um, But it, it makes the majority party unable to govern effectively, unable to address the real problems that exist in the country effectively. And dumbs down the discourse of what the majority party can try to propose and get through into law and do for the country. It dumbs down the Democratic Party that they never have to defend their policies towards the banks. They force the Democrats to play the game on the Republican field. Yes. And, and if your goal is to make government look ineffective, then you're winning. 
The right. Republicans are right. winning. Every time this happens and the government looks like it can't get its act together, they win. Were you following the whole Budget Control Act back in 2011 when it was all going down, or did you tune it out? <laughs> <clears throat> to be honest with you, I, uh, I it was sort of a little bit of both. I mean, it went on for so long, I could really check in and out of that um, with some frequency. It, um, it was really sad to watch, and it was around that time that I realized that the modern Republican Party has really um, uh, taken a dive in terms of its uh, relevance and its potency as a force for politics in the United States government. And it's, uh, it's a real shame to watch because we need to have two political parties that can function and compromise on legislation. It doesn't have to be one party ruling the table or the other. It's just it's just got to be two sides coming together on an issue and trying to govern the country. I think what we're talking about now really is that the government has reached an impasse where we have evolved now a party that is so bent on proving itself right, proving the idea that government is no longer a viable institution and going to such extreme lengths to make that point. The Democratic Party is in a really tough spot and will continue to be as long as this force is considered um, relevant in American politics. And that really, I think, more than anything else, I think that is the great political issue of our time because our 200-year-old two-party system is really starting to fracture because it uh, it is no longer a game of compromise, it's a game of winning the new cycle and winning the next election, which matters more than policy. I agree with all of that, but I think the Republican Party has gone several steps even further than that because they're working through the systems that they can get power in to make it impossible for people to vote for the other party, for the other party to govern. Yeah. For the act of electing itself to be compromised. Yeah. It is a true... It's, it's not just anti-democratic with a big D, it's anti-little D democratic. Like, it's against the idea of representative democracy. The sequester is just the most overt and, mo- and newest ramification of that. But as you were talking about earlier... The Budget Control Act itself said it also said, in addition to the money that the super committee was supposed to cut, like, the the sequester is not alone. There's another part to it, which is that it set a cap on spending on discretionary programs from fiscal year 2013 to 2022 at $1.5 trillion. Total. Total. Over over 10 years. Yes, over 10 years. And that's separate from the $1.5 trillion that were going to be cut from the military and from Medicare. The most important thing that I think people really should understand about the sequester legislation is that it's not just something that happened on Friday. It was something that uh, will happen every year for the next 10 years randomly across the board. And things will get just like cut and more and more and more will be cut. Um, going from, you know, staying at the levels they are now uh, with certain pieces coming out of each department. I think it's like $43 billion per year out of the Defense Department and 20 for Medicare or something like that. Um, right. Some of, the, some of the levels of cutting have been capped. Yeah. Uh, for some of them. And then it, yes, grows for some for, of the programs. it grows for special interest spending on special interest programs, things like, you know, the SBA and, you know, various environmental groups, EPA, itself, right. like, and that, suddenly the money starts to come out of that more and more over time. And in the long run, those, you know, 
important federal departments that are you know providing those services are going to be slowly walled off and that is part of the reason why the sequester plan is perfectly fine for the modern republican party because things it will ensure that things will get cut forever and if you're a republican and that was your goal in the first place you have no reason to really oppose it or to care which is why you hear guys like john boehner being like oh the president is uh, is really um uh exaggerating all of the uh, the dire you know this that um that the democrats are all just sort of ginning it up is some big scary thing because to them it's not to them it's the point well and it, it, it's also possible for them to do that because at every step of the way the gop has sent the current spending cuts that have been written into law they throw them down the memory hole and say oh when will the president get serious about cutting spending but we have already done 2.4 trillion dollars in deficit reduction yes uh the most um um that uh way more than the last four presidents combined have done in terms of total uh, over time yeah the u.s government has reduced the deficit in the first term of the obama presidency faster than any presidency since world war ii yes and no one is talking about it. Barack Obama is the best thing that ever happened to the budget deficit, and it had nothing to do with congressional Republicans. There, at every step of the way, congressional Republicans made those deals less fiscally conservative. They retained more of the Bush tax cuts for the top one percent. Yes, they. Um, what else? They undercut the stimulus and forced it to be watered down with tax cuts yes. rather than direct spending on states. It could it should be noted also that they could have taken a lot of credit for the ground that Obama was willing to cede in the sequester debate. He was willing to cede on Medicare beneficiary payouts and on raising the retirement age, which both of which would have put him into a lot of trouble and chain CPI. Exactly, and those are those are three things that Obama that Boehner could have walked away with with a round of applause, but he wouldn't oh, close oh, not for just, tax loopholes. It like wouldn't he wouldn't do it. Not just a round of applause. Boehner could have run for president in twenty sixteen. Yeah, think about it. Like he would have been the most successful GOP House Speaker ever because ever. Barack Obama literally offered him the farm in exchange for actual tax uh, you know, revenue raising. And here's the other thing, another myth that has to be dispelled, and let's just take care of this right now. Yeah, what happened? Absolutely. What I'm happened? <laughs> what happened on January 1st when the fiscal cliff, you know, quote unquote thing was averted? Boehner likes to say all the time, and his big favorite talking point right now is, the president got his tax cuts, and now uh, Washington has a spending problem. We're spending. done with revenue. Yeah. The, the tax raising that happened in January was not raising taxes. It was expiring, termed expiration of the Bush tax cuts. Expiration of tax cuts, not revenue raising. Difference. So he actually didn't get all the taxes that he wanted. He didn't even come close. And what they're trying to do now is just raising taxes on multimillionaires. Not people making a quarter million dollars or more, or $450 million of thousand dollars or more, but just a million plus. The super, I know it's 400000 plus. Well, that's Well, that was the fiscal cliff deal for... Right. For this one, what he wanted, yeah. he would, the Buffett rule would change rules oh, for people yeah. making millionaires, like real millionaires, and that minimum can, percentage that can close the the four hundred billion dollar gap. Mm-hmm. That's how you close that gap between the two things, and that's how you end budget deficits, and that's how you can stop passing CRs every year and actually write a budget. 
That's how you do it. Obama <laughs> gave the Republicans the farm and with two little conditions that the Republicans simply wouldn't accept, they let this sequester happen. That is why this is entirely but their no, fault. But let's, let's drill down even deeper into that. That's really important. It should be noted there is a term thrown about in the mainstream media called the grand bargain. Mm-hmm. Everyone waxes poetic about the days when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill sat down and hashed out our nation's problems like yeah. men did. <laughs> <laughs> Over and scotch. Again, a lot of scotch. A lot of scotch, a lot of misogyny. <laughs> it should be noted that those quote unquote grand bargains were horribly contentious and like the two of them hated each other over those. Yes. So putting that part of the mythology aside, there's been this zeal in the mainstream press and in most of the beltway political movements and organizations um and among President Obama, because he's he seems to be pretty much the only person in elected office who wants a grand bargain. Um, the grand bargain is a package, um, a mythologized about and much proposed package of spending cuts and some kind of revenue increasers, whether that comes from um, cutting down rebates in taxes that the government gives mostly to rich people or from actually raising tax rates or ending offshore tax havens, any of that. Regardless, it's some combination of spending cuts and tax increases. It's things like ending the mortgage interest deduction and ending um, uh, capital gains, you know, right. deductions, things like right. things that only rich people who have money to fool around with the stock market and care about. And precisely as you've put it, President Obama was willing to go vastly further than the $2.4 trillion that have already been laid out. And on that $2.4 trillion, the New York Times today estimated that it, it their math was actually underestimating the deficit reduction, that it's actually $4 trillion, which is the amount in all the proposals that has been thrown about as what should be an ideal grand bargain number. Again, all this shit is completely fucking arbitrary. Yeah. No one ever shows the mathematical work as to why $4 trillion is good. And we'll get into later how deficit reduction at a time of high unemployment is fucking ridiculous. Not to mention the fact that deficit reduction isn't even a real goal anyway that nobody cares about unless the other side is in power. Oh yeah, we'll 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 get around to all that. So on the one hand, you have Obama as you perfectly crystallized being willing to cut benefits for two of the most successful social programs America has ever created. They're not democratic programs. They're American programs. People in overwhelming majorities that affiliate with either party or no party overwhelmingly agree with keeping the benefits of these, pro- of these programs at their current levels or increasing them. Obama was willing to give up that part of the farm, at least. Which is something that a Republican Congress in any other decade would have jumped out without question, with even bigger tax increases. It's up for debate, I think, whether Republicans legitimately want to cut entitlement programs anymore. I mean, I think they, of course, want to hand them off to private enterprise, you know, as George W. Bush proposed to do with Social Security, and as Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan proposed to do with Medicare. Yes. But I, I... I think they understand now that 
their base will not support cutting entitlement programs. I mean, Romney, in the campaign, attacked Obama for going after your Medicare, when, of course, we all know the cuts in Obamacare to Medicare and Medicaid. Cutting payouts. Yes, payouts to providers, not the benefits to the beneficiaries. Yeah, but you can can sort of fudge that a little bit because people don't really know the difference popularly, so they can sort of get away with like fuzzy language like that, and that's what that's how that's how you win an argument that you're on the wrong side of, is you make everything so fuzzy and complicated, people are just like, ah, screw it, we can get rid of it anyway. Because of that, they retain the reputation as being fiscally conservative without yeah. ever, ever actually having to propose cuts in legislation for anything. Yeah, because they still have to win elections. Exactly. And those aren't the programs that win them elections, it's all the other social weirdness, you know, crazy fire and brimstone rhetoric that wins them elections it's not their policy that does you know like it's like with the right. when um uh nancy pelosi's daughter went to uh mississippi did you see that alexandra uh, alexandra yeah. yeah and she did this video was that on uh, oh, a real time with bill maher yeah yeah and it was uh, uh she went to uh, like somewhere like mississippi or alabama and she was walking around asking people about social social programs and people said things like i don't want the government getting involved with my medicare or my social security not realizing that the people they were electing to office were there to destroy those programs. And when they were confronted with that information, they dismissed it as impossible because, you know, government can't be good. They couldn't understand, they couldn't get the idea that the government was providing those services to them. And if you live in a place like Mississippi, you're getting the best possible return on your tax dollar. You know, oh please, please explicate, Sir Godwin. Well, I, I would love to, uh, Mr. Pearson. The um, the grand irony of all of this is that the people who put Republicans in power are the people who are the biggest beneficiaries of government spending. Period. If you are red below- states, red states take in much more in tax dollars from the government than they do contribute to the revenues of that government. They do. While we're talking about this, I'm actually going to get the exact figures because I think it's it's worth saying. Oh, there's there's a map on the interwebs somewhere. It's really remarkable to hear people in a place like Mississippi talk about that. It is. It's just. It's just so thoroughly insane that people who I mean like. Okay, so the 10 highest, so these are the states, the 10 highest states with the oh biggest God. ratio of, you know, lowest amount of money spent on taxes versus most amount of government services received. The, uh, and that list is Idaho, New Mexico, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. So of those 10, eight of them are permanent red states, with New Mexico and Florida being um, swing states. Right. And you have, but it's amazing that those reds at places like Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, which have not Former Confederate voted states. for a Democrat in 20 years nationally, um, though it, the fact that those states are the ones that are receiving so much of the, the best benefits, like so for every dollar you spend in your taxes, you're getting like 250 back in returned services. So you're actually, you're buying things at an incredibly cheap price. Wait, when wait, you but Chris. throw those dollars to the government to get those services as opposed to private enterprise, which would take that as profit. But Chris, that would make all those nice Republicans moochers. I know, and we can't have that, can we? So if you're a savvy Republican politician in the 21st century, you go out and you make those government spending programs all the scary, you focus on all the scary things, like how Barack Obama is giving, 
you know, federal tax money to Solyndra. It's sun power. Isn't that weird? That sounds like something weird California people do. And everyone in Mississippi's like, yeah, I don't want my money being you know spent on that sort of thing. Or they focus on social issues like Damn I don't want hippie windmills, right? Or or they would go after something like Planned Parenthood. Be like, I don't want public money being spent on abortion. Well, you know what? Nobody wants public money spent on abortion. Neither does Planned Parenthood because only like something to like two percent of the money they get go even to anywhere even remotely close to that. Everything else that they do, the majority of their services are everything but providing abortion services. So they actually provide a lot of things in, you know, in the contraception world and also in, you know, teaching people how to, you know, be moms. And, and basic health care, mammograms, breast yes. cancer screening. These are these are essential services. These are hard things for women to afford on their own because they're expensive. And women have a bigger health care need than men do in that area. So things like Planned Parenthood are easy to demonize because you can focus on the one thing about them that everyone in that party regards as evil and dismiss the rest as, well, yeah, but none of those other things matter because you kill babies. And as soon as you frame the argument like that, people in Louisiana who are who are like, yeah, I'm going to send this guy to Washington to end all that, you know, just, you know, screw the government sort of thing. And it feels good. But don't touch my Medicare. <laughs> yeah, but don't touch my Medicare or Social Security. Yeah. And it's uh, is that disconnect. It's all about disconnect. And that's what modern politics really is. It's like every every time you go through one of these issues – that has to do with, like, why would they do this? Uh, why would they uh, encourage such terrible policy? It's because there is a disconnect between what people really want and what people think that they're getting. And those mm. two, those two mm-hmm. things exist in two different realms. And well, and also that, va- that also mirrors the disconnect between what elected Republicans say they're going to do and what elected Republicans end up doing in office because once they no longer have to cater to the unwashed masses who are going to vote for them, they can revert to true form and do what their funders want. Now, it just so happens that a lot of there are a lot of coincidences in the thinking patterns and desires of these rich funders. For instance, fighting basic access to health services for women, setting back the rights of LGBT folks, discriminating against non-white people in the voting process. Like there may be coincidental things, but the actual interests of the less than wealthy white folks who constitute the remainder of the GOP base, their interests really don't enter into the mindset of the people they send to elected office anymore. And exactly as you're saying, like it's a tragedy as much as it is amusing at some level that the folks who still vote Republican that receive more in benefits than their states pay into the government. It just goes to show what a strong binding agent for bullshit fear can be because the whole construction of the right-wing narrative of America requires massive suspension of disbelief that can only happen in a panicked state. It's the only thing to me that makes sense of the mindset that gets propagated from the right-wing media, that Obama is the Nazi, Marxist, communist, socialist, Stalinist, Leninist, who's coming to take your guns away and to take your Social Security away and your Medicare away. Which doesn't even make sense. Like, and that's the thing. This is, again... It's It's a mess of contradictions. None of those things are true. None of those things can even... It's so frustrating. And we need to cut government spending immediately or the country is going to fail. What else? How about war? 
Oh God! How about the uh, the fact that when the forces behind the Republican Party engineered not one but two full scale overseas conflicts simultaneously without any regard for reality? And I think it is clear now, based on reporting after the fact, that uh, that those those events had were much more than meets the eye in terms of what the goals really were, who was really behind the decision-making process, and what those motivations really entailed, uh, apart from what the public was told, which has been verified by multiple sources to be no longer correct. Republican in 2003 had to both vote for a tax cut and had to vote in favor of a conflict that would put trillions of dollars on on a national credit card without paying for it. Off budget. And you would think that entirely deficit financed wars. A true conservative that was unprecedented, unprecedented. in American history in, and possibly world history. No responsible government for any country, democratic or otherwise, would consider financing a full scale war against two different countries without increasing revenue for the government to spend on those wars. So the fact that <laughs> much you would, less actively decreasing revenue right. to the government, it, it's, <laughs> like, it's simultaneously, gotta made, it's got to be made clear to a lot of these voters in these red states who will vote for a Republican, but also insist that the services that they receive do not disappear either. The Republican Party exists in this perpetual circle of policymaking that that sort of makes no sense. And it just sort of serves the moment. And it's all because they just do not take the role of government seriously. And that's the root of all of these problems, is that Republicans do not want the government to be effective at solving problems. Exactly. So they'll make sure that it fails all the time, and everyone's sort of left thinking, well, why did this happen? How did this... Because you're electing representatives who want it to happen. Exactly. They even say it out loud. It's not a secret, you know? It's it's out there for the public to see, and a lot of people are just not willing to accept it. Right. And I mean, it's encouraging at least that our president now recognizes the absurdity of the GOP quote unquote governing attitude. Yeah. Um, I wish he would more, though. So I I, I I, wish he would more. And I I wish other Democrats would be challenged. Yeah. But I mean, we don't we don't have a media capable of doing that. We have. Another Washington Post blog that I like a lot is called The Plum Line. It's this guy, Greg Sargent. He writes a lot about the just how shitty our national, international, multinational corporate media are. Um, but he had a great article talking about how the, the false equivalence pundits are part of the problem. The battle over the sequester has sparked a corollary argument over the proper role of pundits in assigning blame in political standoffs of this type. A number of us have argued that the facts plainly reveal Republicans are far more to blame than Obama and Democrats for the current crisis. The GOP's explicit position is that no compromise solution of any kind is acceptable. This must be resolved only with 100% of the concessions being made by Democrats, which means any compromise Dems put forth is by definition a non-starter at the outset. Analysts reluctant to embrace this conclusion, an affliction I've called the centrist dodge, have adopted several techniques. One is to pretend Dems haven't offered any compromise solution when in fact they have. A second is to argue that, okay, Dems have offered a compromise while Republicans haven't, but Dems haven't gone far enough toward the middle ground, so both sides are still to blame. 
The problem is with this dodge is that it fails to acknowledge Republicans themselves have openly stated there's no distance to which Dems could go to win GOP cooperation short of giving them everything they want. But we're now seeing a third technique appear, acknowledge that Republicans are the uncompromising party, but assert that it's ultimately on the president to figure out a way to either force Republicans to drop their intransigence or to otherwise, quote unquote, lead them out of it. And I mean, he goes on to talk about like David Brooks and like a lot of the fucking mainstream pundits that end up on every Sunday talk show, but have no operational understanding of the incentives at play either for the president or for the Republican Party. Um, But exactly as we've been saying, like it's if anything, Obama is being has been too conciliatory and. If anything, like he needs to be an example to other Democrats to question the obsession with deficits and debts in and of themselves without thinking of things like budgets or jobs or people or lives. Or reality. Or reality. And, 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 here's, and here's what I mean by that. If Imagine that you're Barack Obama and your position is that you are trying to negotiate um, a financial deal with people who want to burn the house down. Okay. These are this is the crazy person with the gun to the head. And your negotiating style of just sort of being like, okay, bro, you know, come at me, bro, come at me, bro, isn't gonna work because that's what they want you to do. So what you have to do in smart politics is figure out how to use that against them. And you have to turn this into a weapon. Or you can turn it into a tool um that where you can sort of embarrass them and win at the same time. So what if you were the president and instead of, you know, you instead of doing what he did, you do something like this. Say, "Okay, well, I don't want the sequester to happen either, so I'm going to give you your spending cuts. They're going to be less than what I originally agreed to, but I'm going to give you the spending cuts and I'll take all the tax and you know, and we'll agree to deal with tax reform, not revenue raising, but tax reform in the summer." Right? Right. So you can sort of you can sort of have um, you can it's punting the football, but you're also giving the Republicans a chance to cross you know, retreat over the Golden Bridge, as the Sun Tzu expression goes, and then they can back the president's sequester deal. The president gets credit for ending the sequester, and the Republicans get credits for credit for getting their spending cuts, and then you can come up with bipartisan legislation detached from the the spending cuts to close tax loopholes. You're not going to get everything you want in that realm either, but it's still better than the sequester. But Republicans would never vote for it because they would say, as they were saying now, that, oh, closing these loopholes would be raising taxes. But you're still ending the sequester. Right, but Republicans have no incentive to end the sequester because now they can use this in 2014 as a campaign issue against Obama by saying... President Obama savaged our military and savaged our entitlement programs. It's too late. They're going no. It's not too late. That that is what they're going to run on. They're sure. going to run on the sequester in twenty fourteen. Oh no, like, you're that's right. Going to be. I completely agree. And the Medicare cuts that, from Obamacare. Again, yeah, because the program will actually be starting will, up by then. Yeah, and and that that's going to be. And also, people are going to be getting mailers saying, "By the way, now you have to sign up for health insurance, or else we're going to find you." When people start you're getting right, those. Right. Those letters in the email, like, what the heck? I, I didn't know anything about this. Oh, yeah. We'll see so, a quote-unquote organic resurgence of the Tea Party. We'll see we'll see yeah. vinyl-wrapped buses sure. from Americans for tax fairness or what the fuck ever. But here's the problem, is that already, two to one, 
voters blame the Republican Party for this. They don't blame Obama. It just didn't stick. Well, and not Their only that. Their narrative didn't stick because no, exactly. nobody bought it because the Republicans were the ones going, yeah, we're not going to accept the compromise. They're the ones who have clearly and openly and just plainly have walked away every yeah. single time. And they just look like douchebags. And, just, and they, now, if anything, all, Repu- all Obama has to run on are, are the facts. Yeah. Because we've already done, as I said, $2.4 trillion up to perhaps $4 trillion in deficit reduction. And it clearly has not lowered unemployment. Which is the number, which is the number again, that everyone wanted. The $4 trillion number is the, what right, closes the, the magic deficit number. And that gets a budget passed. And Obama literally handed it to them without any fighting on a silver platter. And the Republicans were forced to say no because it doesn't burn the House down, which is all they really want Not to only do. that, but it's come out now that it was Eric Cantor and Paul Ryan who convinced John Boehner not to take the grand bargain back in 2011 and 2010 before that. Yeah. So it, it literally is that part and that central to the party. It's people that central in the in the leadership of the Republican Party now. So again, like there's no incentive to stop the sequester on the Republican end at least. Yeah. But once the cuts start coming in earnest, um, there is going to be pressure. And hopefully there might be support for Conyers' bill. Like, And hopefully at some point we might see John Boehner set aside this stupid Hastert rule in the House that requires unanimous Republican support to bring anything up for a fucking vote in the Republican-led House of Representatives. That rule got set aside to pass the New Violence Against Women Act reauthorization. It got set aside to pass the uh, debt ceiling deal. Um and like the deferral of the the sequestration cuts from earlier this year. So maybe that can get set aside. But what really needs to be fought beyond just these tactical shenanigans and the recovery, um, the recovery threatening cuts that we've written into law, there's an idea at the very bottom of all this deficit talk that we really need to move on from. Um, And it's the idea that the question of a health of a country and its government are whether the debts and deficits are high. Which aren't real to begin with, which are all arbitrary. And that's what people have to understand, this whole whole talk about deficits. The reason why people only care about it when it's convenient is because it's not really worth caring about at all. And it's only we, ever an issue, and it's only made central to the American political discourse when Democrats are in office. There's another piece to this, too, which is that I think a lot of people, a lot of average voters, don't understand what government spending means. I think when they hear politicians talk about spending, you know, we have a spending problem in Washington, spend this, spend that. The, the image that it conjures is like, you know, a 21-year-old kid in Vegas with, you know, dad's credit card and, you know, running around spending money and all these other things. I think that's the image that it conjures up. But what government spending actually is, is injecting capital into a private economy. And it's about, you know, uh, engineering um, projects into existence. And it's about encouraging um employers to hire and it's about improving infrastructure and it's about um, investing in education and science and research and the government spending that happens isn't just a kid with his cre- dad's credit card it's actually making the world better 
these spending things aren't designed to to take money from taxpayers and redistribute it. It's designed to direct the the power, the financial power of the entire country into specific causes as effectively as possible. It's an efficient way of making the country better because it is not driven by profit. It's driven by the happiness of voters and the, and the results that they get. And our collective will that we represent by voting for people who go into office representing us and who write and pass laws. Yes. And that specific mechanism, the writing and passing of laws, has been completely derailed by the Republican Party. So again, it, it exa- and exactly as you put it, like, that is making Congress specifically paralyzed and unable to do the people's business is part and parcel of this project to delegitimize the idea of representative democracy in general, because you're proving actively by your, by the laws that you obstruct from getting passed and by the watered down or subverted nature of the implementation of the laws, like you were proving that government doesn't work. Um, But I want to go back to something you said earlier, because it's, it's not only the notion that um, government spending is, is being misdirected or is being wasted. There's also the, the myth propounded by the Republicans that government spending doesn't create jobs. As there's this arbitrary distinction between public sector jobs and private sector jobs, but they're all jobs. A fired teacher, a fired firefighter, a fired cop is just as much an unemployed American person as any other fired or unemployed person. We want there to be those kind of jobs and that money going out of the economy. And if it's going into professions designed to make everyone's lives better, things like teachers and transportation people like bus drivers and things like that and postal workers and you know government servants you know public servants who work to make sort of every the the system work better for everybody else at an efficient cost is worth the tax dollars your tax dollars you're investing it's like it's just like paying rent you know on the place that you live, you're investing in the community to make sure that the services and everything is provided for at a cheap rate. Because if you were paying for that in the private world, it would be two, three, ten times as expensive. And not only that, but the Republican argument is now, we're not going to pay rent anymore because we've spent too much money on rent in the past. But it, again, like I, I think this idea that the debts and the deficits ought to be the single issue we focus on to the exclusion of all others has become really prominent both in the left and the right. And I feel that that really needs to be fought. There's an economist, the chair of the economics department at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Her name is Stephanie Kelton. Um, and I've seen her on a couple shows and I've heard her on a couple podcasts and I'm not trained in economics at all, but the ideas and analysis that she kind of propounds are called uh, modern monetary theory, MMT. And it's, it's kind of brilliant because the entirety of her perspective on economics lies counter to the professions of the Republicans that we need to cut spending now, that we're going to um, have a horrible long-term debt problem. All of this deficit hysteria is pretty much dismantled by modern monetary theory. And so here are the five kind of main principles. And there's a website, Credit Write Downs, and it's a finance blogger. And he crystallized the professor's philosophy 
lengthy, but it, he just really elegantly put them. Number one, the U.S. government is not revenue constrained. There is no revenue constraint for a sovereign currency issuer. The point here is that all attempts to rein in deficits because of questions about solvency are artificial. The U.S. government creates the currency it uses and can never be rendered insolvent involuntarily. Number two, the U.S. government is the only American economic agent that can act counter-cyclically. And this is like one of the most basic principles of Keynesian economics. In a time of depressed economic activity, when there's too little demand in the economy, the government is the spender of last resort. The fact that the American government prints money also means that in times when the business cycle goes down, the government can be counter-cyclical. It can spend at the times when nothing else in the economy can. That's why bailing out the car companies worked. That's why, despite my fucking hatred of it, bailing out the banks worked to save the financial system because the American government was able to inject liquidity into the banks that no insurance companies or any other private institution in existence was in a position to do at that time. Yeah, only so many people have $800 billion to throw at a problem. Exactly. Number three, if the government did decide to act counter-cyclically, it could either increase spending or reduce taxes. In MMT circles, government spending is considered more expansionary dollar for dollar because of a large fiscal multiplier. In other words, things like uh, longer unemployment insurance have a bigger bang for the buck because exactly as we were saying earlier, people who have less money are going to spend it in the real economy when they get it which in turn creates that virtuous cycle where you build more demand in the economy for things. Yes. This professor says that whether one chooses to add these assets via tax cuts or spending increases is a policy choice. It's the budgeting process that decides how this gets done, which, if anything, just as we're like exasperated about, makes it fucking insane that we've been funding the government, such as we've been funding it with continuing resolutions as opposed to with budgets, because Republicans, again, it comes down to Republicans refusing to ever say yes to anything by design. Convincing their base that that is, in fact, a good policy to be enacting, that we want to dismantle government programs, convincing people that government spending is, you know, we're going to take your money and spend it on random stuff, but it's not. It's very specific things that are for very specific good purposes that do good. And that's what people have to understand about see, government spending. And like, you hear John Boehner now being the very epitome of that philosophy by saying, literally, he's now saying that, oh, he, we can do a big budget deal, but not not with any revenue, as though a big, a big budget deal could be comprised solely of spending cuts or something. But what what he said, his, uh, his kind of punchline to this whole thing was, how much more money does President Obama want to steal from the American people to give to government? Ah, uh, <laughs> it's yeah. it's so absurd. And you know what? Let them look no further than Europe to learn. As though we don't have an example across an ocean. Real time, it happening right now. The there has been this political idea that John Boehner and Eric Cantor's Republican Party is putting forward. This you know obsession with austerity politics is what they call it. You know the 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 dramatic and extreme reduction of government spending sounds like a good idea, but it's a bad policy because what happens is less money goes in the economy. Everything starts to slow down. You know, it's it's sort of like Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, England, 
All the European countries that have enacted extreme austerity measures are having double-dip recessions or going into functionally what are depressions in their economies. This is causing massive political upheaval, so much so in Italy that Silvio Berlusconi might get reelected. Unbelievably. Fucking the amount of pain and damage that has been inflicted upon these economies by the choices of their leaders is an idea that unfortunately some people in both parties are trying to import to America. But this is the, here, the fourth and fifth points that this professor makes, um, Stephanie Kelton makes, are just so glaringly absent in our debate. Like the, the fourth one is that not employing people who want to work is wasteful. Yes. <laughs> Talk about waste. Here's the real problem. It should be noted that government spending is designed to solve to ameliorate. That is why government spends counter cyclically for people who have the capacity to work, the skills to work and the time to work to not be able to find employment when there is a record amount of corporate profit on the books not being spent when the U.S. government can borrow money at unprecedentedly low rates. The rates on the treasury bills are historically low. We could deficit finance infrastructure in this country. That's how America's reserve currency is doing because of its standing in the world. And For as long as that lasts. Well, with with this Congress, anything's possible. But you can't... But that's the thing. If, if that threat were tangible then you would see the interest rates on those go up. And there are also um, a particular kind of treasury or something like that called tips. They're like the canaries in the coal mine of whether Wall Street is expecting inflation. And according to the tips, to those to those particular investments, no one expects inflation. In fact, if anything, the, the problem is continued deflation because we're continuing to actively remove demand from the economy. But even putting aside how that's counterproductive, how cutting government spending is counterproductive to economic recovery, how you in fact undermine deficit reduction when you cut demand out of the economy because you're being pro-cyclical and going with the trend of reduced economic activity. There's the moral waste of the fact that you are wasting human capital. You are keeping people on the sidelines who could be doing work. And I mean, and they are, again, as the, as Stephanie Kelton says, like, you're forgoing a lot of GDP growth through the deadweight loss. It's an artificial scarcity of jobs because of the private sector's capital allocative process. Because from their position, it's rational to say, look, government is pulling out and pulling money out of the private sector. Why should we invest our historic profits to spend money to hire people now? Because they're pulling demand out of the economy. They're, we aren't going to have customers to, to justify hiring more people and using our profits to pay for that. The Republicans are fucking every incentive that could be virtuous and could lead to positive feedback loops in the economy. That they could be taking credit for. Exactly. And using to rebrand exactly. their party. This is what they're – if you really want a viable second party – you need to you need to take a minute to pass good legislation once in a while. Even George Bush made attempts at that. He, you know, you know, no child left behind. That was activist government expanding a homeland security option. That's activist government. You're actually solving problems in real time using government spending. Even he could understand 
moments where that kind of spending is a good thing. Cast your mind no further than national defense in general. It is America's only remaining large-scale nationwide public jobs program. And the military is the most respected public institution that exists in this country by, like, double digits of percentage. Yeah, and it employs millions when you count, like, all the supply chains, all the people down the line. Oh, yeah. The restaurants and communities that are based around military bases. It's so ironic, and it does require an absence of the facts or a hijacking of our rational thinking abilities by fear or some other mechanism that requires us to look past the truth, which is that when government spends money to that it can print to create jobs, then the economy is stimulated and people have money. <laughs> but again, and this was the professor's fifth point, like no one seems to understand this. No one really gets national accounting, or if they do, they act like they don't to support their ideological agenda, which of course addresses the Democrats who believe in this. The point here is the one that Goldman's chief economist, Jan Hatzius, made recently. Every dollar of government deficits has to be offset with private sector surpluses purely from an accounting standpoint, because one sector's income is another sector's spending, so it all has to add up to zero. That's not true. Any cha- any net change in the government's balance means an opposite net change in the, go- in the economy's other sectors in aggregate. It's not about building bridges to nowhere. It's about using fiscal space afforded to the issuer of the currency to help ride out business cycle troughs. That, well, that that's an absurd. I mean, that's that's supply side voodoo. First of all, you're setting no, it's up demand. You're setting up. I'm just saying. Well, yeah, yeah. It's the demand side. Yeah, because but yes, theoretically, because theoretically, the government could issue however much money is necessary to offset the gap. The only yeah, but the only the only reason that you can you. <laughs> I don't even know where to start taking this apart. It's so absurd. The idea that the public sector and the private sector are competitors is crazy. It is not. No, it's not that. No, it's not. It's not the idea that the idea that transference affects one or the other. It's false. The reason that happens is because those private companies that work and spend and operate within American borders paying taxes to a public system. Of course, that's transference of money, but. That money also goes out into other private systems. So what it does, what the government, the public sector really does, is it keeps that liquidity flowing. But again, back and but, forth between. But the to places. the other point that we made, it's all in the same economy. The again, it's not that a sovereign nation that prints its own money and that is the world's reserve currency couldn't ever possibly be in a situation where its amounts of spending make it a less than worthwhile investment to other countries. Um, it's not like America could never be put in a situation where our money could become insolvent or where our economy really would collapse for one reason or another. But according to all indicators, that's not the case now. We don't run that risk. And we don't run that risk for this foreseeable amount of time that governments and economists can actually reasonably accurately predict things, which is 10 years at the very most. But even that's a crapshoot. Yeah. 
We are orienting our entire governmental apparatus and our whole economic discussion as a country around that risk, the potential of the risk that America could become insolvent if we don't get our debts and deficits in order. But we don't take that fictional risk and weigh it against the real damage that is done when we have workers idle, when we have demand lacking, when we have people suffering. And we have legislatures encouraging austerity measures as a form of good government, which it is not. Precisely. Precisely. Because then, and we are seeing this explicitly playing out in the European countries that adopted austerity measures. Right now. Their deficits are getting worse. They're getting way worse. What a lot of people assume is if we cut spending, then the money that's coming into the economy right now is going to, it'll match up. But the, but the reality is when you start to cut spending, the income, the revenue that you're getting goes down too automatically. And the reason why this kind of legislation is so popular with Republicans and sort of allowed to happen is because they want to see the government slow down to a crawl. They want to make it, render it impotent. Yes. Because that fulfills their argument. It proves them right. And it says, look, we're right. The government can't do anything for you. Give us more power. So we can cut your taxes more than, you know, invade small third world countries because we're bored right now. <laughs> you know, we don't have any, we don't have any uh, crises in the country that we actually care about to spend any time solving. So we're going to, uh, you know, freak out about a fictional, you know, bomb scare in Iraq and then invade it for some reason. They like to do that sort of thing with government because it's sort of, you know, it's sort of an adorable alternative to actual well, policy making to make. And it reinforces better. their feelings that they're right. And it uh, it reinforces the, the feeling of self-righteousness that American exceptionalism requires. Yeah. It's an ego-based mentality. It's kind of like manifest arrested development, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> I feel like the reason that fear is such a powerful fuel for the conservative mind is that the injection of fear into any situation paralyzes your critical thinking. It paralyzes your capacity to understand new ideas. And not only that, but like neuroscientists are are now beginning to realize that people who are exposed to new ideas are even more likely to cognitively burrow in deeper into their wrongness because it threatens their feelings of, of superiority and of self-respect. People like to feel like they have a good grasp on reality and they don't like to have that challenge. Even right, exactly. Our, our grasp of reality is tenuous enough <laughs> right? without other people shitting on it. But why, yeah, but if you don't take that seriously, then why Why worry, you know? Exactly. exactly. And that's And that's what allows people to deafen themselves and blind themselves to real crises that are happening right now. Stylophone-based iteration of the intro song was performed by myself. This could have been a two-hour podcast, a single episode, but I decided there were too many babies to start killing them all and editing that thing down to one hour. I decided to split it into two episodes. So this will do it for the 28th episode of By That I Mean, and I hope you all gird your loins for the 29th, and the 29th will be out next week. This has been the By That I Mean podcast. I'm Seth Pearson, and next week you will hear more of Chris Godwin, and I'm kicking myself for not having invited him onto the show before, but, well, I'm just glad that he's here now.
If you like this podcast, subscribe to it on iTunes. And you can like it on Facebook at facebook.com slash by that I mean. You can submit cookie recipes to my website, themfp.org. And the By That I Mean podcast is a production of the MFP Studio in Los Angeles, California.